It's so good to see you. Um, I am so happy to be here. In many ways, I feel like I know you in this funny way because any opportunity that Pastor Gino and Pastor Shannon have to tell a story about SSV, they take that opportunity. They love telling the work that God has done here over the last nine years. Happy early birthday, that's a big deal. Um, and they love telling the stories of what God has done, how he has put your church together, how he's crafted this community. And so it's really fun to be standing in front of you and seeing you with my own eyes versus just hearing a story about you. So thank you for having me. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, in many ways, this is a full circle moment for me. My parents moved our family from Evanston to Homewood when I was two years old. I grew up on Lexington Road. I drove by my old house this morning on the way here. And um, so the most formational years of my life happened just a few minutes away from this building. And true story, those were very, very hard years for me. So standing with you in this space is a really powerful sign to me of God's redemption and his faithfulness. So I just want you to know it's a gift to be here, and it's a personal moment to be here as well. God is doing good things. So over the last few weeks, you've been working through this series called Fit for Life. Myself, some other people in our congregation have been following along via podcast. Every once in a while, one of your preachers will welcome the people via podcast. I'm one of those people. People listen to the teachings that happen in this space. That's one of the gifts of the internet. We don't get a lot of good gifts from the internet, but that's a good gift from the internet, is that we can stay connected. And so I've been following along in your series on Fit for Life, and kind of the heartbeat question of this series has been what are the components of a whole rich life with Jesus? What are the pieces that we can pursue and cultivate and add to our life that allow us to be fit, healthy followers of Jesus so that we're ready? Ready to do the things he's asked us to do, fit for those moments in life that are not so pretty and not so easy? How do we intentionally practice kind of the facets of the Christian life so that we're healthy Christians. This is more than just kind of your initial sign up to Jesus. We believe that we contribute to our life with Jesus all throughout the way. And so that's what kind of this series has looked at. And so we know that we should follow the words of the Bible, right? It's God's gift to us. You should open it, read it, find it, if you don't know where it is. We should know the words of the Bible. That should add to our lives. We desire to be used by God. We want to kind of embrace the purpose that we've been designed for as individuals. And we know that we should be good stewards of all that God has given us. Whatever version of resources that God's given you, you know that as a follower of Jesus, you should be a good steward of it. You should use it well. We gather in our churches on Sunday morning and we say, okay, I am pursuing, I am pouring into my relationship with Jesus. I want to do this well. But at some point, despite your best effort and your best intention, you're going to fail. If you do this long enough, if you follow the road with Jesus long enough, at some point, you're going to miss the mark. At some point, you're going to fall short. 
At some point, you are not going to do it the way you wanted to do it at the beginning, right? You make a poor decision with your time, your money, your resources. You do the thing you said you wouldn't do. You use anger instead of love. You undermine some value or commitment you've previously made to Jesus. So you know where you want to be. You know the relationship with Jesus that you want to have. You know what Jesus is calling you to, but your actual reality of him and with him is far away. And so there creates this tension. We know the relationship we want to have with Jesus, but the actual reality we live in is far from that. And attention begins to grow in that space. There's this chasm of where we want to be and where we really are. And in that space, disappointment and shame and regret grow. And they grow fast and they grow fiercely. And the thing that is so disturbing to me about disappointment and shame is that they grow quietly, but they grow so quickly and so rootedly that very soon after they've taken root in our relationship with Jesus, it's hard to see Jesus and it's hard to hold on to the truth. When disappointment and shame are in your sight line, it is hard to hold on to Jesus and it's hard to know what the truth is. That's the place that our relationship with Jesus often gets derailed. That's the moment when we are disappointed with ourselves, when we're faced with shame and regret, we instinctually disengage and give up. We just give up. It's too hard, it's too complicated, and so it feels easier to give up. We disqualify ourselves from a rich relationship with Jesus, and we settle for just having a seat in his house on Sunday morning. If we want to be fit for life, we have to learn how to hold on to Jesus, how to follow Jesus through disappointment and shame. I do not believe that Jesus leads us around disappointment and shame. I believe that Jesus leads us through disappointment and shame. So if we want to pursue a rich, whole life with Jesus, we have to learn how to hang on so that we can move from our actual reality to that whole, rich life that we so deeply desire. And that's complicated. It doesn't happen overnight. It's something that you learn. It's something that you practice. At some point, despite your best effort and your greatest determination, you are going to find yourself face-to-face -face with disappointment and shame. And Jesus doesn't want to lose you there. He wants to lead you there. So how do we hold on? That's what I want to talk about this morning, following Jesus through disappointment and shame. And in order to do that, I'm going to tell you a story this morning. Rather than just reading you a text out of the Bible, I'm going to tell you this story. And you can think about it kind of like watching like the director's cut on a DVD. Have you ever watched those like bonus features, if you remember when people used to buy DVDs? There's these things called the bonus features, and the director and the crew and the cast, they actually kind of talk over the movie. 
And the idea is, is that they're pointing to these like significant movements or moments in the story so that you better understand what's happening. And so then in, the, in turn, you can carry the story with you. And I think we can do the same thing with the Bible. If we can talk through the story, if we can point out different important things and significance in each passage, then we can better understand what's happening and therefore carry the story with us. That's what I want to do this morning. So our story this morning is from the Gospel of John. It involves Peter. Maybe you've met him before. Peter was a faithful follower of Jesus. From the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Peter had a front row seat to, to Jesus' teaching and his work. Peter saw Jesus heal people, cast out demons, feed the 5,000. Peter was sure that he was sure that he was sure that Jesus was the Messiah. And in turn, Peter did everything he could to please Jesus. He was an overachiever in the pleasing department, okay? If you want to look at someone that theoretically was fit for life, it was Peter. He was ready. He was ready to do whatever Jesus pointed to, whatever Jesus called him to. But after a few years of traveling together, Jesus' conversation about going to be with his father started to increase. Jesus, they had always heard that maybe... Jesus would go back to be with his father, but nobody knew how that was going to play out. And so increasingly, Jesus begins, begins to note this more and more. I'm going to be with my father. I'm going to be with my father. And as Jesus talks about that more, Peter's anxiety begins to grow. Peter's increasingly becoming more concerned and more worried. And at some point, Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Why can't I follow you? I would lay down my life for you, Peter says, to Jesus with a ton of conviction. No, Peter, Jesus responds, you in fact will disown me before the rooster crows three times. I imagine Peter thought, impossible. I'll never do that. I'm ready to go. I will never disown Jesus. Well, just days later, soldiers come, find Jesus. It's totally chaotic. Peter violently tries to defend Jesus to keep the soldiers away, but it's no use. You probably know this part of the story. They take Jesus away. There's accusations, uproar, violence. Peter's left alone. He's afraid, he's vulnerable, and he's totally unsure of what will happen. After three, four years of following Jesus in step, Peter is totally alone. That's a really disarming feeling. The person you've been following is no longer with you. It doesn't take very long for the questions to start. Are you one of Jesus' disciples, someone asks? Peter says, I'm not first time. Did you know Jesus? Another person asks. I did not, Peter responded firmly. And the third person gets more specific. Wait, weren't you with Jesus when they arrested him? I was not, Peter said. And the rooster crows three times, just like Jesus told Peter it would happen. Peter's failed. 
He's done the thing he said he wasn't going to do. He was so ready. He was so fit for this moment. He was so ready to defend his Jesus. He was so well prepared. And when push came to shove, when the moment arrived, he did it. He disowned Jesus. It was not supposed to happen this way. Disappointment and shame and regret fill Peter. There's no going back. What's done is done. Peter has failed. And my heart aches for Peter in this place because we've all stood in some version of this moment. Whatever your version is, I have mine. We all have had this version where we've shown up to the moment that we were sure we were ready for and we fail. We miss the mark. And disappointment, this moment happens when we fall short of our hopes and expectations. I wanted to follow Jesus' instruction. I thought I could do this. I wanted to do a good job. And disappointment is like quicksand. The longer you stay in it, you find yourself sinking deeper and deeper and deeper into disappointment. And when disappointment shows up, shame steps in. They work in tandem. Shame is that pesky, never-ending, always-there voice that says, you are not enough, you should have, and you always. Shame has three phrases. You're not enough, you should have, and you always. You're not smart enough, strong enough, not creative enough. You should have moved, should have married, should have taken that job, should have taken that risk, should have partnered with that person. You always fail, always give up, always get angry. You will always be this way. That's what shame sounds like. And disappointment and shame, they work for failure. So the minute failure shows up, disappointment and shame step in. And they're this pesky, kind of creepy little team. They pull us inward and they create this wedge between us and God. And they threaten our relationship with God because disappointment and shame change the way we see God and the way we see ourselves. That's an absolute threat to your wellness with God. If disappointment and shame are in the mix, the wellness of your relationship, the wholeness and the fitness, if you will, the, the, the preservation of your relationship with God is at risk. Sadly, it is only a matter of time. And Peter was sinking in disappointment and shame for days. For days, Peter watched Jesus be put on trial, publicly beaten, humiliated in crucifixion, and it didn't matter. Peter couldn't do anything about it. Peter could not take back what he had said. Peter could not fix the situation. What's done was done. Jesus is dead. 
Peter had failed him. Didn't matter. Couldn't do anything about it. Three days after Jesus dies, the women come running to Peter. And they say, the tomb is empty. Peter and the other disciples disciples rush to the tomb to see if that's true, and it is. The clothes that they had used to wrap Jesus' body in, they're laying there, but there is no body. Jesus is gone. They hope that he's risen, but this was just something they had heard about. They didn't have any written testimony of how this was all going to work out, so it's total panic. All of a sudden, Peter and the disciples and those that knew Jesus, those that lived up close to Jesus, there is this concern. They are incredibly vulnerable. They have no idea what's about to happen. And so they stick together, Peter and the disciples. Everything they know is different, so they're convinced they're probably safer together. There they are, gathered in a room, Peter and the disciples, and Jesus appears right there in their midst, in their vulnerability, in their pain, in their worry, in their fear. He just shows up remarkably. He's risen. The Bible says the disciples are overjoyed. And Peter's standing there, but there is no mention of what Peter has done. There is no talk about what's happened. There's no moment for Peter to pull Jesus aside and apologize. Jesus just shows up. And then he leaves. There was no closure There was no moment to explain himself, no moment to defend himself, no moment to beg Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus was there, and then he's left. I imagine disappointment and shame were like gnawing at Peter. You know that feeling when you've blown it, and then nobody's talking about how you've blown it, And you just hope we're just going to move on through it and nobody talks about how you've blown it. I imagine that's how Peter feels. He was supposed to be the star. Like the model disciple. This was the person that we were supposed to follow because he was following Jesus so closely. And he's completely failed. There's something standing between him and Jesus. Everything is different now. And so Peter does the thing that most of us do when we're stuck in disappointment. We go to the thing our hands know how to do, but our heart doesn't have to show up for. We all have a version of that. Something you can do arguably without thinking or feeling. I would cook if that was me. But Peter was a fisherman. So Peter goes to fish. So one night, he and a few other disciples, they go out to a boat, and they catch nothing. And when morning's arrived, they see that a man is walking on the shore. Now, the Bible tells us it's Jesus, but they don't recognize him yet. And so Jesus calls out to them, friends, haven't you had any fish? No, they've answered. So Jesus says, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And then John, 
the disciple turns to Peter and says, it's the Lord. Jesus is there in the flesh on the shore and Peter is stuck in the boat. Water is separated them. Love is there in the shore. Disappointment is stuck in the boat and shame has separated them. This is arguably the most pivotal moment of Peter's relationship with Jesus. We'd like to imagine that every pivotal moment of Peter's relationship with Jesus was a beautiful moment, right? Jesus and Peter had all these moments of teaching and learning and following and practicing and doing ministry and doing what we in the vineyard like to call the work of the kingdom, right? Everybody gets to play. I think Jesus modeled that. And so Peter and Jesus played, if you will, a lot. That's what's so formational. But I think this was the most pivotal moment for Peter. Would he stay bound by disappointment and shame in the boat, or would he reach for Jesus? Love is there on the shore. Disappointment is in the boat, and shame has separated them. And Peter has a decision to make. And we have the same decision to make when we are in the midst of shame and disappointment. Will you be bound and stuck in a boat, if you will, or will you reach for Jesus? Disappointment and shame like to tell us that what's done is done. There's no going back. There's no redemption. There's no fixing it. But every, the echo of the Bible, the echo of God's message to his people is, I am never done with my people. I am never done with those I love, even those who have failed and disappointed me. So we have a battle here, if you will. Who will be louder in this moment? Disappointment or Jesus? You know, what I find so disturbing about disappointment and shame is that while cognitively in my brain I can know disappointment and shame are destructive and isolating and painful, shame and disappointment are bizarrely comfortable. If you live there long enough, you are convinced there is no other way to live. Shame and disappointment are uniquely comfortable. If you live there long enough, you are convinced there is no other way to live. This is just what you get, if you will. And the thought of getting out of shame and disappointment is so mind-blowing, so complicated, it would require so much effort that it just honestly seems easier to stay there. Right? Getting out of it could require so much effort, so much intentionality, so much creativity that, you know, it's just many times easier just to stay there. I like to think of it like trying to get out of a beanbag chair. (laughs) So go back to the 90s. Maybe you still have one at home. I had a beanbag chair, okay? Beanbag chair, 
they're like these, I don't know who invented them, but they were brilliant. It's essentially like a giant, um, I don't know, giant pillowcase, if you will, and it's full of all these like fake beans, okay? And it looks like a cloud. And so you see a beanbag chair and you think, that looks so comfortable. I'm in it. Let's do this. And the way you actually get into a beanbag chair is that you just kind of like fall over. You don't actually intentionally sit into a beanbag chair. You just flop down. Five seconds in, you're like, this is so great. Hand me the remote. I'm set. I feel great about it. But have you ever tried to get out of a beanbag chair? It is like the most socially awkward chair to remove yourself from because you don't just stand up out of a beanbag chair. You have to like roll your body and then like hoist yourself. You often need a friend. I mean, it's one of those moments where you want to say to the room, please look away while I remove myself from this chair. And I think that is how just, and, and once you're out of the chair, you think I am never going to sit in a beanbag chair again. It's some sort of, I don't know, physical trap for your body. That is what it's like to get out of disappointment and shame. It is awkward, it is clumsy, you have to get in positions you never thought you had to, you often need a friend, and all you want to do is say to everybody, could you please look away while I hoist myself out of disappointment and shame. But once you're out of it, you think to yourself, I will never live there again. So what will you do? When you are stuck in disappointment and shame, will you stay there? Simply because it is more comfortable and the thought of giving out is so complicated. Or will you reach for Jesus? Thankfully, Peter wrote, reached for Jesus in our story. Thank God. He reached for Jesus. In fact, my favorite part of this text is once John says, it's the Lord, Jesus, or excuse me, Peter jumps into the water. He can't even wait for the boat to get to shore. I think Peter's so sure, so unsure of himself in the moment that all he has to do is fling himself into the water. Like, I know I've got to get to Jesus. I don't know how to do that. So I'm just going to, like, throw myself into the water. That's how desperate he is to get through disappointment and shame and to get near Jesus. Disappointment and shame could not keep him away from the one he loved. Thank you, God. And when Peter reaches for Jesus, Jesus does two remarkable, life-changing things for Peter. And I believe that Jesus does these same remarkable, life-changing things for us when we reach for Jesus in disappointment and shame. These are the same things that he will offer to you if you reach for Jesus through disappointment and shame. The first thing he does is kind of hilarious to me. When Peter gets to the shore and the other disciples finally make it to the boat, they see that there's a fire there. There's some fish and some bread on the fire. Peter is soaking wet. I imagine that he's standing there kind of breathless, right? It's taken every ounce of courage Peter has to get out of the boat. There he is. He's soaking wet. He's probably, you know, like fully clothed, soaking wet, standing in front of Jesus, and he's probably like doing that heaving thing. Like he has no idea what Jesus is about to do in that moment, right? 
And the first thing Jesus says is, come have breakfast. Come have breakfast. Breakfast. This isn't like a teaching moment. Jesus does not want Peter to, doesn't want to walk Peter through all the things that Peter's done. This isn't the moment where Peter has to apologize or explain himself. Jesus says, come have breakfast. Jesus wants to eat with Peter. When we reach for Jesus, the first thing Jesus does is that he brings us close to himself. Isn't that remarkable? Peter has absolutely failed Jesus. Peter absolutely failed the test, if you will. And the first thing Jesus says to him when Jesus is face to face with Peter is, come have some breakfast. Peter had hundreds of meals with Jesus. He knew the rhythm of sitting and eating with Jesus. The text says Jesus took the bread and gave them some, and then he did the same thing with the fish. This is the same language that we use at communion. This is the same language that we use when we remember Jesus' blood and his body for us. So Jesus is pulling Peter out of disappointment and shame and bringing him close. Jesus is bringing Peter back to the table, back to communion, back to intimacy with Jesus. Disappointment and shame tells us once you have failed, you are disqualified from the table right? That's the lesson. You've lost your seat. If you didn't do what she has asked you to do, you are therefore disqualified. You are not allowed to sit at the table. This narrative says that that's a lie. Disappointment and shame like to tell us you've been disqualified. The message of Jesus is come have breakfast. That's remarkable. That is, that is like life altering, mind boggling, message from Jesus. Peter has not lost his place with Jesus. Peter is still invited to breakfast. Peter still gets this intimate space with Jesus. Growing up, when I was younger, uh, my parents used going out to breakfast as a way to have one-on-one time with my siblings and I. I'm one of four, I'm the oldest, and so our house was loud and crazy and someone was always coming and going and their phone was always ringing, okay? It was just, it was like on all the time. And so my parents, as a way to have one-on-one time with us, they would take us to breakfast, okay? There was a breakfast place a couple blocks down the the street from where we grew up and we would go to breakfast. So uh, you accomplished something really hard let's go to breakfast. You made the team, let's go to breakfast. You did something stupid, time to go to breakfast. Your boyfriend broke up with you, time for breakfast. You need to have a little conversation with mom and dad, it's time for breakfast, right? My parents used breakfast as this way to bring us close. When all of our behavior, when all of our choices should have disqualified us from that intimacy, my parents chose to serve us pancakes. 
And at breakfast, depending on the topic for why you were there, at breakfast you could talk and talk and talk and cry and cry and cry and apologize and apologize and apologize and my parents would just listen. No pesky sibling could interrupt. The phone would not ring and nowhere, no one had anywhere to be for an hour. You were the absolute center of attention, which in a large family is a big deal. And once you were done talking and crying and apologizing, my parents would listen and encourage and direct and correct and take away privileges and discipline and encourage and love and all that parenting dance that we'd all do, try to do our best at. But the point was, was that we were sitting at breakfast, we were close in proximity to our parents, and we had their full attention. The first thing Jesus does for Peter is says, come have breakfast. When disappointment and shame have told you that you are disqualified from proximity to Jesus, Jesus is offering you breakfast. Isn't that remarkable? He brings you close. He's trying, Jesus wants to reestablish relationship with you in that space. Jesus wants to pour into you, to listen to you, and then to respond to you. Lots of times it begins with love and kindness and tenderness, and then comes correction and, and teaching. But it starts with close proximity. If you choose to reach for Jesus in disappointment and shame, Jesus does not begin with correcting or fixing or giving a consequence, he begins by bringing you close. And it's not until after breakfast that Jesus turns to Peter and has a little conversation. And this is what he says. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? That's Peter. Jesus is talking to Peter. And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says, feed my lambs. And then again, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter says, yeah, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says, take care of my sheep. And the third time Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. Jesus, in that moment, is reminding Peter of who he is. After his failure, after he's missed the mark, after he's disappointed Jesus and himself, Jesus comes back to Peter and says, this is who you are. Jesus uses this dance of three questions to remind Peter who he is and what he's made for. You know, disappointment and shame, they like to tell us who we are and what we're made for. Disappointment and shame say, you're not good enough. You've ruined it. You'll never be who you want to be. And feed my sheep is Jesus' way of saying, Peter, 
you are capable and gifted. You know me. I trust you. Continue my work. Take care of my people. Feed my sheep is saying, is Jesus saying to Peter, you are not disqualified. You still get to play. That is so incredible. When we are stuck in disappointment and shame, Jesus will not let us rest. He is fiercely protective of how he has designed us and us being sure of our identity. Disappointment and shame, they try and like re-sketch our identity. They tell us who we are, what we're capable of, what we're made for. And Jesus will not let his creation be tampered with. Jesus is a protective creator. He's eager to step in to remind us of what we've made, we are made for. And so when disappointment and shame, they kind of move in, Jesus is offering to Peter is, that's not who you are. Let me remind you of who you are and how I've designed you. And he gives Peter the opportunity to recommit himself. He redeems each betrayal with a question. How cool is that? Jesus isn't saying what's done is done. Let's just forget about it. Let's move on. Jesus gives Peter three opportunities to say, I love you. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. I love you, Lord. That powerfully matches every time Peter said, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Jesus goes back. He does not go back to shame or to tease or to punish. He goes back to redeem, restore, and take back. So will you reach for him? Will you let Jesus do that work? Jesus will not let disappointment and shame devour you. He is absolutely committed to your well-being. Jesus' desire is for you to be fit and well and strong, ready for all the things that he's called you to, even when you miss the mark, even when you fail, even when it doesn't turn out the way you wanted it to or the way that you tried to make it turn out. About 10 years ago, I stood on the stage of the Evanston Vineyard with my husband, Bruce. Uh, It was a big moment. Steve, who you know, was the senior pastor of our church then, and he stood in front of the Evanston Vineyard, all the services, and said, Renee and Bruce um, are leaving the Evanston Vineyard. Bruce has accepted a job as a worship pastor, okay? And at the time, everyone was like, aww, it was a very sweet moment. Uh, we had grown up there, and we were being sent out of the Evanston Vineyard to become worship pastors at my husband's home church in South America. This was a big deal moment, okay? From the minute, like, my first date with this guy that eventually became my husband, I knew that this was the dream, The dream was to become a worship pastor and to spend our lives kind of loving and supporting the church through worship. So if you kind of signed up and married this guy, that was what you got, 
okay? Everything we did in our early marriage was pointing towards this goal. We spent a year interviewing at vineyards all across the country to figure out where was going to be the place that we were planted and we would thrive. Where were we going to go, Lord? We'll go anywhere. And my husband happened to get a, church, a job in his home church in South America. And so we went. We sold everything we had. We were doing it for Jesus. We were feeling real proud of how well we were going to just kill it at this job, okay? Church was excited. Our sending church was proud of us. The church that was receiving us was proud of us. Expectations were high, high. Our first Sunday, the cake they bought was huge, okay? <laughs> they were feeling real excited about having us. So I'm going to tell you Bruce's story of that experience. I have his permission. He told me I could tell you. We show up to this job, and no joke, from the first day, it didn't go well. It was terrible. In many ways, it was like living of one of our greatest nightmares. For three years, every day for three years, I watched Bruce struggle. It was a terrible match. Bruce was a phenomenal worship leader. Phenomenal. We knew that God had said to go. We knew that this was responding to what God had said for us. We knew we were prepared for this moment, but it didn't work. We tried everything to make it work, and it didn't work. Every day was hard. Most days feel like a, felt like a failure. The church was disappointed. We were disappointed. It was not going well. And so Bruce quit. We couldn't believe it. He quit. So we moved back to the United States. We had no job, no money, no plan, no vision, and a baby. <laughs> it was a real crummy place to be. We moved into my parents' basement. We were feeling real sad about how things were working out. We were absolutely embarrassed. We were totally embarrassed. Three years prior, the Evanston Vineyard had sent us out with joy and hope and high expectations, and three years later, we were in the back row, beat up, in pain, and failed. And Bruce could not function. It seemed like he had failed his family, his church, me, our baby, God, everybody. Bruce was convinced that this was the end of that dream. And so... He packed up his guitar. The guitar went into storage. And after years and years and years of music being played in our home in every second the day allowed, um, our house was silent. And if you're married to someone who's a musician, a silent house is not a good thing. It was eerie. It was really uncomfortable to be in our silent home. And so for a year, we sat in the back row of our church, and that guitar sat in storage. 
okay? We spent a year grieving and healing and being cared for and putting our life back together, but the guitar stayed in storage. Bruce got a job outside of the church. We started to put our lives together a little bit, piece by piece, but this time there was no music, absolutely no music. And Bruce continued to struggle. Disappointment and shame had written a very convincing narrative for Bruce that said, you have completely failed the way that God has gifted you. You pursued the things that God has made you for, and it didn't work. It's over. Disappointment and shame had written this kind of story for Bruce that said there was no going back. Time to move on. You have failed everyone. And so one day, we're sitting in our living room talking about how miserable our lives are. Um, we were really bummers of people to like hang out with in those days. So we just sit around talking about how horrible life was. And um, we're sitting in our living room talking about how horrible all our life is. And Bruce stands up like very intensely. And he has a very gentle personality. So it was like a very startling moment. And he stands up and he says, I can't live like this anymore. I had no idea what was going to happen. And he said, I don't know what I'm about to do. I don't know what's about to happen. And then he looks at me and goes, do not listen. I said, okay. And he goes down and he gets the guitar out of storage. And he goes in the back bedroom of our very tiny apartment as far away as he could from me. And I hear him begin to play. And it was songs I've never heard before. They were songs of pain, of shame, of disappointment, of regret, of apology. It's like listening to a wounded person ask for mercy. And every night for months, Bruce would come home from work and he'd go in the back bedroom and he would play these songs. And it was heart-wrenching to listen to. It was almost worse than a silent home. All of a sudden, Bruce had language for what it felt like to be so far from God. What it felt like to have disappointment and shame separate him from the heart of Jesus. But every time... Bruce was willing to go into the back bedroom and to play the guitar. It was as if he was jumping into the water. It was as if he was reaching for Jesus. He had gotten so fed up with the narrative that disappointment and shame had written that he was convinced he needed Jesus. And ever so slightly, the music began to change. Thank you, Jesus. Ever so slightly, the words began to change, and I began to recognize them. Bruce began to sing the Psalms. He began to sing to Jesus all the things the Bible said he was. And very soon after that, the door began to open. He didn't play with the door shut anymore. Then he moved to the living room. Then he started playing louder. And when we planted our city campus three years ago, and I said to Bruce, you want to lead worship? He said, I would love to. And he has committed now for the last three years to teach a whole new batch of followers of Jesus what it means to meet and reach for Jesus in worship. Jesus, 
it's incredible to watch. And you know what? Even when he's singing happy songs on Sunday morning, you hear it. Because when someone has made their way through disappointment and shame and made it to Jesus, it sticks with them. Yes. You want to be fit for life? Then follow Jesus through disappointment and shame. Yes. Let it stick to you. It will so radically transform how you stand in the moments of failure. It will so radically transform how you understand Jesus turning towards you. It will so radically transform how deeply you are anchored in truth and in God's character. So reach for Jesus. Figure out what it looks like. Pick up a guitar. Call a friend. Do the thing, whatever it is, that is your version of reaching for Jesus. Take the risk. Tell someone you're struggling. Figure out what does it mean to reach for Jesus in your disappointment and shame. Do not overthink it. It's often very, very simple. If you reach for Jesus from your disappointment and shame, you will find that Jesus is endlessly faithful to invite you to breakfast and to put you back together. Do not let shame and disappointment devour you. Reach for Jesus. Let me pray for us before we worship. Lord, I thank you that you extend yourself to us when we reach for you. So, Father, I pray that if there is any place where any of us are stuck in disappointment and shame, Lord, would you show us what it means to reach for you in that place? Would you show us what it means to jump in the water? Would you show us what it means to live with you through that place so that it does not derail us, it does not keep us from you? In Jesus' name, amen.